This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for May 10th, 2017. Every Monday, I'll be bringing you brand new content, but for the next while, on Wednesdays and Fridays, I'm including previous interviews in this feed, like this one with Todd Feinberg, the conservative talk show host and presenter of the Harvard Lunch Club podcast. We talked about a wide range of his political views. I hope you enjoy the interview. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Todd, I was listening to that podcast. You were talking about the Orlando shooting, the tragedy where 49 people were murdered in a nightclub, uh, in a gay nightclub there. Uh, You were saying that this is making life difficult for Democrats and liberals. Why is that? Well, I think it makes everybody's life difficult as they try to politicize it. So the, um, to me, that's the key part of it is the war over politicization. And the um, actually, you know, what you were listening to was maybe a couple days old, and I feel like it's going fairly well for the left. Their um, challenge is to always avoid what the real issues are and to try to turn these shootings into gun events where they can campaign for for gun control. And I think they've successfully pulled that off in the um, in the week or so since we recorded the last show. Well, I mean, one thing that seemed fairly obvious that a lot of people said was that if you can have a no-fly list for people who are suspected of being involved in terrorism, is it really so outlandish to have a no-buy list that they can't buy guns? Of course it is, yes. It's outlandish to ask a completely incompetent federal government which has grown so bloated and morbidly obese that it can't do anything properly. It's more concerned with maintaining itself and growing itself and taking care of its own internal special interest groups than it is in any measure of success that could be quantified by the outside world, that the government spends its time lying and misleading and making sure uh, the people who put them in their positions and pay their salaries are unable to detect just how fraudulent they are. Yeah, a no-fly list is a list without due process that has 800,000 people on it that uh, with duplicate names and no way to find know who the names actually are in real people and people who are on it who shouldn't be on it. And the idea of taking that list to uh, to take away people's constitutional rights or limit them in some way is is an appalling idea. Actually, I agree with you on the no-fly list. I think it's badly done and it's badly administered. Um, but And also I agree with you in, in the uh, sense that it has very little due process attached to it, if any. But there are some people, perhaps some of them roving the streets, perhaps some of them in mental homes. But if somebody who has a certifiable uh, mental condition, who is unstable, who is known, for example, to be prone to psychosis, if they manage to drag themselves to a gun show, they can buy any amount of weapons that are enormously destructive. Almost every civilized country in the world has a process to prevent people who are 
obviously unsuitable to be in possession of weapons to make sure that that doesn't happen. Is that so outlandish? Uh, you know, you can pick all kinds of policy ideas in isolation and say, isn't this a desirable piece of fruit that we should be allowed to pluck off the bottom of the tree? Mm-hmm. The trouble is when you have players who you can't view as honest, sincere players, whose task is not to actually uh, make things safer, but is to figure out a way to get rid of guns altogether. And, and, and that you have to you have to go to that default in definition of the war and to understand how the two sides are reacting. So sure, on all kinds of policies, there's all sorts of rational things you could do. But if you're dealing with irrational, nefarious players who don't have the best interests of the country in mind, but only their own political gain, you don't isn't want to it, isn't, isn't it a bit outlandish to imagine uh, conspiracies everywhere that everybody in every government department wants to change the United States into some sort of uh, fascist dictatorship? Most people just oh, no, want I'm to sorry. do a good job. No, I'm not suggesting. No, I'm not suggesting that. I, what I'm saying is that when, you, when, first of all, when you, to your specific point, when you take good people and put them in a corrupt system, the corrupt system tends to win. And the system of Washington is one in which you just have enormous bureaucracies which are are driven by the things that most bureaucracies are driven by. If you want to survive over the long term, which is what most human beings are driven to do to maximize the benefits of their career, you don't make decisions, you don't make bold decisions, certainly you try not to make any decisions. You try never to be noticed. You try to hide from the new boss long enough that he's gone and the next new boss comes in and then you repeat the process. Yeah, but, but for example, no, for example, for example, every, everybody knows that the, the driver licensing system is a bit of a pain, that it's difficult and that it's inefficient and you have to wait in line. But driving a car is quite an important thing to be able to do. Nobody disputes that. And the government takes the power to say this person can drive and this person can't. Now, you could argue a whole lot of things to reform and make that more efficient, but there is there anybody really who's nuts enough to say that there should be no controls on who can drive a car or who can't? Well, driving a car is a good example. So there are regularly controversies in my state, and I assume in states all across the country, over mm-hmm. senior drivers. Yeah. Yes. And um, elderly drivers uh, who need to be off the road because they're dangerous are never taken off the road by the bureaucrats because they're afraid. Mm -hmm. It's too sensitive an area to go into. So they're left on the road. And there are frequent accidents where the explanation is, oh, they're, you know, they're 80 years old or 90 years old and they stepped on the wrong pedal or what have you. Uh, But that's that's an argument. Come on, Todd. That's an argument that the system is not working correctly and can be improved. It's not an argument that the system should not exist. Well, this is the great tension that gives us government. Our founders knew that that was a horrible thing to have to do to create a government. And they learned over time that they had to make it stronger than their instincts told them. They had the, they had the image in their minds of what government had always been mm-hmm. and what their specific experience with government was, which was centralized government that doesn't have a compelling internal mechanism to keep it 
um, serving the needs of the people would never have any interest in serving the needs of the people, would become a demonic force that couldn't be trusted and would just keep taking more power for itself. So they tried to design a system, knowing it was nearly a foolhardy effort, to put enough checks and balances and to diffuse the effects of power enough that they could, that maybe it would work, but they weren't optimistic. And as it turns out, it didn't work. At this point, we no longer have anything vaguely resembling the checks and balances that they wanted for us. And we now have a huge centralized government, exactly the thing that they didn't want us to have. And we have one of the two political parties running around actively and deliberately trying to make it larger at every turn, no matter how no matter how 180 degrees it is from the uh, original intent. And the other party that goes along wherever it's convenient for them to go along, uh, knowing that they, they're the second worst party on, on constitutionality so they can get away with it. One thing, I want to change the discussion a little bit because, of course, um, the shooter in Orlando doesn't seem really to have been in contact. He for sure wasn't anything like a high-level operative for uh, Daesh or ISIS or whatever you want to call it, but he was certainly inspired by them. And if you look at the uh, the, the transcripts of the 911 calls that are coming out, he, he obviously had that in mind. Um, but do you kind of get the feeling that if he had been uh, speaking with more of a drawl and saying how he thought the uh, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, was uh, infringing on his Christian rights to uh, be homophobic, do you think that uh, the Republicans would be quite so actively condemning this? Uh, if it didn't fit into a favorable narrative, nobody would be uh, playing it up. So. Yeah, whoever gets the narrative victory uh, takes the narrative victory, and and the, the person, the side that doesn't, tries to distort the story into uh, being for their narrative. That's just how it works. Everybody in that business is playing the same game, and that game is to regularly have a team of people sifting through all the incoming narratives and figuring out how to distort them so that they are favorable to the party. Truth and the best interest of the American people has zero to do with any of what comes out of their mouths. Mm. On your podcast, you said how this narrative, the, the, uh, the truth of the story, maybe as opposed to the narrative, was uncomfortable for Hillary, Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. Can, can you maybe just explain that for me? The Democratic Party is based on a business model of building special interest groups. Representing outsiders to the system has become, uh, more recently, their, their pretty complete model as they've lost the ability to appeal to traditional right, uh, traditional white voters. And they are, uh, stepping up as the demography comes in their direction. They're more universal appeals to uh, minority voters. So they're always looking for minorities to embrace. They're always looking to pretend to be the caretakers of those minority groups and to thus get disproportionately large percentage of voters in those minority votes. Uh, it blocks voting for them because they get special gifts in return for their votes or they perceive themselves to be receiving special gifts. So some of this has to do with um, deliberately um, committing acts of treason against the country, like encouraging and allowing illegal aliens to come in and stay 
and then arguing that compassion requires that they be made citizens. In the meantime, they get to practice as citizens in the country. They get to get benefits and vote and do all the things that they're not allowed to do. Black voters who are held in permanent poverty by the Democratic Party in the areas the Democrats control absolutely are voting for Democrats at 92, 94% rates. I mean, just stunning rates of votes. Hispanic voters in the well, sure, they're entitled to vote, vote for Democrats. they choose. Yes, they are, but the Democrats aren't entitled, in my mind, to turn the federal government into a cash machine, an ATM machine for its own voters at the expense of everybody else. It's supposed uh, to be equal treatment there would, there the would law, be people, There would be people argue that, that argue that frequently the Republicans do that for their friends in Wall Street. And who is the beneficiary of those? What is the repercussion of those benefits? The repercussion is a thriving Wall Street, which created great middle-class growth, economic activity, and a wealthy, affluent country. So yes, both sides take care of their uh, constituencies. The constituencies of the Republicans happen to be the people who drive the economy, which is the only thing that you can build a country around. Either you have an economy or you don't. If you have an economy, you can be a first oh, come on. world Street, nation, Wall Street, and Wall if Street you isn't don't, you can be a Wall third Street, world nation. Wall Street isn't a, an economy. The economy is building things and uh, supplying services. Wall Street supplies yes, essentially banking, essentially vehicles to, to shift money offshore. college over the last 30 years? How did they renovate their homes? How did they buy homes for their kids? It was Wall Street wealth that did this to a large extent. And uh, uh, real estate wealth as well, which was also driven by the affluence of Wall Street. So yes, Wall Street is not the real economy of people making things, but it is where the the great capital comes from that makes this country so different in Germany or in other smaller economies around the world. It's, uh, there's not as much money for investment in things like venture capital, in tech firms. The reason America is leading so much of this new economy is because we have the capital here to make it happen, and that capital has to do with Wall Street-created wealth. So if you want to compare the benefits to society of creating a permanent underclass, which Democrats are good at, or creating a permanent wealth machine that Republicans are good at nurturing, I would go with the Republicans. Oh, well, yeah, that's an extremely loaded way of putting it. What makes you think... Well, I'm sorry, but that's the only way I know how to talk. I want to turn back to, to specifically to the difficulty of the uh, of the uh, Orlando shooting, because actually I think in some of what you're saying... I think we were going to a, talk about that, and somehow I keep taking you off of it. I you did, indeed, and, and because <laughs> I thought there was a nugget of truth in one of the things that you were saying, which was that... Some people on the left have a hesitancy of criticizing anything at all that is associated with either Islam or the Islamic world or Islamic countries because, and I think it's because they have a, a fear of being associated with racists who say things that sound similar and they tie themselves up in knots and fail to uh, condemn things which are truly horrendous. Um, but the the uh, and that 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 difficulty is exposed when one group of people who perhaps some people on the left have sympathy with that's to say Muslims or one member of that group attacks a a, a, a gay nightclub uh, with an explicitly homophobic agenda. 
Um, and I suppose my question for you is, don't you think it's possible to believe in freedom and liberty and uh, believe that people who are, are economically deprived should be uh, assisted without having any sympathy for the uh, sort of crazier uh, beliefs of people like uh, Islamic State? Is it possible to believe in the dole and not believe in radical killers? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Uh, Well, that's a good question. But explain to me why you think those two things are either contradictory or linked. Oh, you mean because I was talking about the Democrats' business model? Exactly. Oh, just because they, they don't want to articulate certain things that may be real. And they try to distort the conversation. So it is real that this guy happened to be... A Muslim. Mm-hmm. Whatever significance that has in our conversation, we should be able to say what the facts are and then move our conversation based on the facts. But if you are in the business of protecting special interest groups and the macro of that of that net you throw is anyone who's not white is your prized possession, then there's kind of a this horizontal movement, you always want to be thinking about. If, if, if everybody's on the same plane, the Muslim, the black, the Hispanic, the gay, the uh, transgender, whatever it is of, of this, this uh, big swath of special interests you represent, you, you automatically try to defend the, the theme of your overarching interests. So if racism is the club you use, you try to not do anything that contradicts uh, yelling racism. So that's where I get to the Democrats' business model from the Orlando shooter. They don't want to say radical Islam because that would suggest that they want to look at uh, Islam as, as a problematic force in our society, and that's not what they're set up to do. They're set up to have celebrations of people whose skin color is slightly different or who have a different religion, and they want everybody else in their spectrum to see that. They, they don't want to be seen as messing with their brand. You know, They want to be consistent in their brand, and their brand is to fight for the person who's uh, declared to be part of the underclass. Todd, I actually think that there's a grain of truth in what you're saying, and I think that some people on the left... Wow, some you're Democrats, very generous in your grading system. Th- 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 Thank th- you very th- much. You're, you're welcome. And I, and, and I think that there are, that, uh, there are people who, uh, for whatever reason, are hesitant to condemn with as full a voice as they should the uh, uh, that type of, uh, in this case, murderous homophobia. But would you grant that the people who were coming out condemning, and, and Donald Trump was only one of them, condemning the shooting in, uh, in Orlando might have had their cough softened a little bit. They might not have been quite so enthusiastic if it had been a lunatic Christian fundamentalist as opposed to a lunatic Muslim fundamentalist. Well, of course, we're talking about politicians. So we're talking about whores. That's the conversation we're having. And it doesn't matter which side they're on for for whether they're uh, soliciting sex for money. That's the business they're in. And what they do to make that happen is they tell lies. That's how they move themselves along in their in their daily advances. Donald Trump's appeal is only that he is willing to break the code of political correctness. He's willing to speak as normal people think. It doesn't 
stop him from being a moron. It doesn't stop him from being a, a twisted two-dimensional character. But that's a given for somebody who's seeking the White House. Well, roll, roll back a little bit. You, you say it, it, his appeal is that he's willing to say what people think. Um, is that a bug yeah. or a feature? Well, it was uh, it was the feature through the primary campaign, and now we're finding out that he's of such demented stock, uh, so unable to do introspection, or perhaps so disinterested in the job itself. There was a, um, perhaps you recall maybe 25 years ago, there was a runner in the Boston Marathon named Rosie Ruiz who wanted to finish. And in order to finish, she knew she couldn't do a running, so she slipped out of the race, hopped on the subway, the the tube, Mm -hmm. and took it to the end of the race, hopped out, ran up, and finished the last little bit of of her running and accidentally came in first. Mm -hmm. And it ruined the whole plan because she became... The winner, she was there in the winner's circle, they start checking their their uh, documents, their checkpoint documents, and they realize she didn't hit several checkpoints, and the whole thing implodes, and her life is ruined. That's what happened to Donald Trump. Maybe, uh, uh, perhaps that's what happened to him. He just wanted to um, get on a publicity wagon, and unfortunately, he came in first. And he's not prepared to do the things that are necessary to win the presidency. Everybody thought he would be honest for a period of time, be visceral for a period of time, and then put himself in the same box that everybody puts themselves in as a general election candidate. I guess he's not able to do it, perhaps, or maybe he's... Um, he just doesn't care enough. Todd Feinberg, uh, radio talk show host from Boston, also editor of the Jewish Journal in Boston. Thank you very much for talking to me. It was great fun. Thank you, William. Have you read a blog post or an opinion piece that you think is really right or really wrong? Tell us why. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com and let's discuss it on the next show. That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast published on May 10th, 2017. Do you know somebody who I should interview? What topics should I be covering? I'd be really interested to hear your feedback. If you like the podcast, there's one thing you can do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes, give the podcast a rating, and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at ChallengingO. You can also follow Todd Feinberg at ToddTalk. And most importantly, subscribe to the show for free. You can do it on iTunes if you use Apple products or on Google Play Music if you're on Android. There's links for both of those and the RSS feed if you're old school. And because I know not everyone uses podcast software, a lot of you just listen on the website. So I've created a new way to follow the show. You can just enter your email address and get a simple email with a link to listen each time a new show goes online. Zero spam, I promise. You can find them all or get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming on Friday, that's May 12th, I'll have an interview with John Yadarola, one of the presenters of the hugely popular Young Turks YouTube channel. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. <laughs>